Well, let me just begin by saying good morning again to all of you. Happy Easter. Man, it is just great to be here with you. I want to say greetings to those of you who are joining us by video right now. Thanks for being here. What a privilege. What a great thing to be able to celebrate together that Jesus is alive. It's kind of a big day today. It's a big day. It's Easter. It is the biggest holiday of the year. It is a day that we remember the event, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that changed the world, that changed the lives, the direction of the inhabitants of planet Earth, that changed the world and continues to do so today. And we get to celebrate that and be encouraged and strengthened by that today. It's kind of a big day. And I want to ask you a question to think about this day. And I hope you'll think about it during this time that I'm sharing with you right now. And I hope it'll get stuck in your head and you'll think about it later today and think about it throughout this week. I want to ask you this. What if today, what if today could be the day that you look back to six months from now, even years from now, you look back and you say, Easter 2016, when I celebrated the resurrection that Jesus is alive, that was the day that important things began to change for the better in my life. There was, there was a turning point for me. What if, that, what if that could happen? Now, I know something that happened just now as I was asking that question. I know that there was a voice inside of you that thought, that sounds great, I'd, I'd like that. And there was another voice inside most of us here that also said, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't think I believe that could actually happen. I, I believe that voice was in you because it was also in me, honestly. <laughs> As I prepared for today, as I prayed about today, I think I was asking God, do I have to say that? Because <laughs> I don't know if people are going to believe that. Do, do I believe that? And there's a good reason that that voice of doubt is in us. It's called life experience. There, studies show that nowadays the average person sees something like 1,000 or 10,000 advertisements, commercials every single day. Every one of them promising you a better life if you will just buy this one more thing. <laughs> We are conditioned to hear huge promises, and we know that people are lying to us all the time, right? We're conditioned not to take this seriously. So if that little voice was in you, I get it, I understand, it was in me too. And it's not for lack of wanting. It's not like we don't want there to be a day in our lives that we could point back to. We love, we would love for there to be a day in our lives that we could point back to, say, six months ago. That'd be great if it was that long ago. And we say, there was a moment when things began, important things began to change for the better in my life. But there's a reason that we doubt that. It's a life experience. It's a little thing called inevitability. Inevitability, that's kind of a big word. Could you say inevitable with me? On three, say inevitable with me. One, two, three, inevitable. There's actually an easier way to say that, shorter words. Here's a translation of inevitable. I know how this ends, right? I already know. I already know how this story ends because I've lived it before. We all experience inevitability in our lives. Sometimes it's innocent stuff. Sometimes it's just kind of fun. So like for me, I'm a basketball player or I used to be a basketball player. I love the sport of basketball. I played thousands of hours of basketball growing up. I've started playing more again now because I have a nine-year-old son who plays. I always wished I could be better at it, but I never had the height for basketball. You know, it was more of like a, I was just kidding. All right. And I mean, I guess for like NBA, I never did either, but or college. My, my nine-year-old son, like my nine-year-old son also loves to play basketball. So one of my favorite things to do is we go out, we got a hoop out in front of the house, we go to the YMCA. When we, we go play, I'll pull up for a jump shot. Now, not over him because he's still a little smaller, but it's just fun to shoot, right? And especially the first jump shot of the day, I'm telling you when that ball leaves my hands, I know how the story ends. <laughs> 
It's going to clang right off the front of the rim, go off in some direction. I don't have the lift in my legs I used to have, right? I'm going to come up to a jump stop, bend my knees, get down. I go up, and I got so much vertical. I have so much springs in my legs now that when I go, you could slide a magazine right underneath <laughs> my shoes. I'm not, not a thick one, but like a little one you could get under there. So I'm telling you that unless a sudden rush of wind enters the gym from behind me and carries that ball up and in, I know how this ends. It's just inevitable. I brought along another picture, another, another image of inevitability. Anybody remember that moment? Oh, God. That hurts, doesn't it? I'm sorry. I mean, if I'm causing any painful, violent flashbacks for anybody right now, I probably should have warned you before that came up. If, if you don't know, that is a picture from the Vikings playoff game against the Seahawks, January of this year. One of the coldest NFL games ever to be played. Top five, I think it was. Played outdoors, TCF Bank Stadium. Some of you may have been there. Strong, hardy people. Below zero, high wind chills, right? And there was a moment before this moment where there was like this tragic fumble, right? Adrian Peterson fumbled the ball. We all knew, oh, it's over now. And then we got to stop on the Seahawks, and the Vikings started to drive, and you're like, wait a minute, could this, could this happen? And they get down, I think, I've been saying this all morning, I forgot to check, 17-yard, I think on the 17-yard line maybe, and Blair Walsh lines up the kick. I mean, the laces were in the wrong place, right? Still, he lines up the kick. We found out after the game, sports writers were all telling us that 99% of the time, kickers make that kick, right? There, there are videos you can watch online. I don't recommend them. They're not very clean, but there are videos of people celebrating at the game when he kicked it. The ball went up. They were so sure it was going through that after the kick happened, they're celebrating because they won. They were that sure, but it didn't. <laughs> that kick went wide left, right? 99% of the time, kickers make that kick. But if you're a lifelong Vikings fan, <laughs> didn't you already know, right? <laughs> Some of you told me, I grew up in Ohio, so I don't have the history. I don't have, I don't have the scars with this. Although I'm a Browns fan, so my scars might be deeper, actually, than yours. Some of you told me afterward, I already knew how that was going to end. Just inevitable, right? All right, it's sports, it's, sports, it's fun in games. It's, it's harder when inevitability like that strikes at things that matter more in our lives, right? Do any of you struggle with, like, angry reaction in your life? Do you have any anger in your life, or am I the only one who fights this temptation? You come up against unexpected circumstances, unmet expectations. You had plans for how things were going to work out, and somebody did something that followed the whole thing up, right? And you get frustrated inside, and you start to boil. And, and you may not boil over every single time, right? You've got some self-control. But sometimes, if the conditions are right, you already know how that ends. It doesn't end well. You already know how it ends. You don't want it to. It just does. Some of you are married people, right? If you're, you're a married person, when we, when, when, when we get married, don't you think somebody should have told us about the buttons? Like, we've all got buttons, right? Your spouse has buttons. You have buttons. There are buttons that you can push, and there are buttons they can push. <laughs> and when you push it, you know what comes out, Right? There's an angry button. You can push the angry button and get angry to come out if you want to. There's like the silent treatment button. You can push that button and you can make the silent treatment come out. There's an old hurts. There's a past wounds button. You don't want to push it, but sometimes you do, maybe even by accident. And the, and the inevitable thing is that once you do, it feels like, now I know where this is going. 
It always ends this way. It just feels inevitable. And man, you don't want it to be, whether you push the button or got it pushed. You didn't want it to end that way. It just does. It feels like we're stuck in these patterns, right? Maybe you've got other things in your life besides these. Maybe you struggle with dishonesty under pressure. Situation isn't what you said it was going to be, what you wanted it to be. So you kind of fudge reality a little bit. You're willing to lie about that until it catches up with you. You struggle with secret lusts you don't want people to know about, and you don't even want it to happen, but somehow you wind up on this road and you just keep going down it. It feels inevitable. You got worry. You're, you're, you can't get free of the cycles of worry and fear, and they make you nervous and controlling in your relationships. And when you get controlling in your relationships, you know how that ends, and it doesn't end well, and you don't want that to happen, but it feels like we're stuck in these patterns. It's just so inevitable, right? We don't want it to be that way. It just is. Fortunately for us, Jesus knows everything about inevitability. If there was ever a story that from the beginning you could shake your head and go, oh, no, I know how this ends, that's the story. At the start, at first, Jesus was, he was building this, he was unleashing this quiet, powerful revolution he was calling people to himself and changing the ends of stories that did not begin well. He was changing the inevitability structures of the world. He called to himself people who were enemies, and they would make peace with one another. He'd change their hearts and change their relationship. People who were wounded and hurting and angry would come to him and get healed of their bodies and in their souls. In, in Jesus' community, the people he called to himself, he called together the first century equivalent of black and white racial leaders together into one movement. They were called Jews and Samaritans or Jews and Gentiles in Jesus' day. And he'd bring them all together and they could say something like, all lives do matter to us and it wouldn't sound like an insult that nobody understood. He'd pull together people who had all kinds of different philosophies about how the world was supposed to work. Now in our day, if you're on the left end of the political spectrum and you meet someone on the right end, you don't talk or else you know how that's gonna go. But Jesus could pull together people who were the first century equivalent of Republicans and Democrats and bring them together and make them care about the same thing. Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots, they were called in those days. He'd bring people who were far from God, people who were alienated from God, who experienced heaviness of guilt and shame in their lives, and he'd bring them close to God. And they'd learn to experience freedom. And they would learn to pray and hope and live again. He was unleashing a revolution of what seemed like the antidote to inevitability. He was changing the ends of stories. Except that Jesus made the wrong people angry. And when that happens, you start to get a feeling for how the story is going to end. There were people who had power and connections who didn't want to see the change that Jesus was bringing into the world. They didn't want to see this change because the way things were in the present was serving them very well. Thank you very much. You know, next time you find yourself angry about a change or fearful about a change or try to understand why somebody else is feeling that way, you might want to ask yourself, am I upset about this change because the present order of things serves me just fine? But maybe it's not good for somebody else, somebody who's on the outside. I saw what was happening in Jesus' life, and he made the wrong people angry, people with the power to make this stop. And so they did. They got a guy on the inside they got one of Jesus' own closest followers, a guy named Judas, to sell him out 
to betray him, to tell the authorities where Jesus was going to be late one night when he was going to be alone, all by himself praying with a few of his followers. But the crowds weren't going to be there because they wanted to come and arrest him when there weren't going to be crowds that would resist and crowds that would riot. So they came and they found Jesus late at night, all alone except for a few of his closest followers in a garden called Gethsemane. It's a place where some olive trees grew and they would harvest olives and there was an olive press there to get oil. It was kind of a park, a nature area where Jesus would go and pray. And he went and he was praying there, struggling, laboring in prayer, knowing what was coming, knowing how this story was gonna end. And while he was there in prayer, the guards showed up. The Roman temple guards came with swords and clubs and a whole bunch of guys and they came and they arrested Jesus. And Judas sold them out. And they brought him back in the middle of the night for a trial. For, for a middle of the night trial. How sketchy is that, right? They put Jesus on trial. It was, unju- it was unjust. It was an act of injustice. They convicted him unfairly. And then they sentenced him to die. They sentenced him to execution on a Roman cross. And they took Jesus away and they executed him. They killed him there. They crucified him on a Roman cross. And a few hours later, they took his dead body down off the cross and they buried him in a tomb. They they put him in a grave, in a tomb, in the earth. And if you had been following that story and you understood who the characters were and who had the power from pretty early on, you'd have gone, I knew it was gonna end that way. I knew that's how the story would end. And so if you heard me say today, what if today could be the day that the normal things change? What if today could be the day that you look back to and say important things began to change in me, in my life, in my family's life, in my society and community? And something inside of you filed that in the, that sounds nice, but I don't really believe it filing can. I get it. I'm not even offended. That makes sense. Because that's how Jesus' story ended. Until it didn't. Until it didn't. Jesus' closest followers, some of the bravest ones among them, some of the women from among Jesus' followers, they went to the tomb on the Sunday morning after the Friday that he died, and they went to the grave to do what you do with graves, right? They went to take flowers to the grave to beautify the resting place of someone they loved. It's first century, so they took perfumes, ointments, oils to anoint the body, to cover up the stink of the dead body that otherwise would start coming out around the stone that was rolled in front of the tomb. But when they got there, There wasn't anybody in the grave. It was empty. That's not how that story ends. 100% of the time, when you take a dead body and lay it in the ground and come back two days later, it's still there. Except this time. Sometimes old beginnings get new endings. But they got scared at first. At first, they were scared. They're like, who took the body? There must be grave robbers who came. It's not bad enough that they crucified him. They had to come and desecrate his body, and they were frightened. And then pretty soon, Jesus showed up. Pretty soon Jesus was standing there on his own two feet, alive outside the tomb, and he met them, and he said, I told you so. (laughs) I told you this was going to happen. I told you that the Son of Man would be betrayed and handed over. He'd be arrested and tried and convicted and killed, and on the third day rise, you didn't believe me. And I get it, because when does that ever happen? seemed inevitable it was going to happen the other way, and here I am. And they saw Jesus and they realized stories don't have the inevitable endings they used to have. They saw and they believed and they were empowered and emboldened to live whole new lives. Like the world was starting new. 
And they gathered together again in the same kind of communities that Jesus had built in the first place, where enemies were reconciled, where people gathered together across the lines that nobody crosses, a community of all races and nations and genders and social class, and they began to live in grace and mercy and healing and power. And people began to join the movement. They said, yeah, that's what life's supposed to be like. They were a witness to the unbelieving world, what it looks like when God gets a hold of your life. And people said, I want that. And they began to increase in number. And they started to spread across the ancient Roman world and started to change the culture from the grassroots up. This will surprise you. I know it's really hard to believe. Once upon a time, there was a culture that loved violence. And they watched bloodthirsty violence for entertainment. Hard to believe people would go to these gladiator games and they would watch real live action of people just beating the heck out of each other until eventually one of them killed the other. They would fight wild animals and be torn limb from limb. And, and if people fought well enough and they, 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 they fought valiantly enough to survive or to die, people would give the big thumbs up and go, awesome. And we still do that today. That's where it comes from. And the Christians, as they began to say and became more numerous generation after generation, because sometimes stuff like this takes a long time, they began to say, isn't that a little bit beneath our humanity? Don't you think? And over time, they abolished the gladiator games. They changed culture. How does stuff like that change? It seems like inevitable. Once you get that thing going, it just keeps on going. But if Jesus is alive, people change. Communities change. Relationships change. Years later, people who followed Jesus came to know God in the way of Jesus, believed to the core of their being that God created every human being with dignity and that people from whom their dignity had been taken, that Jesus saw them and brought them in and everybody was created in the image of God. And they looked around their society and they saw that there was one race of people that would sail boats to Africa and they would capture, enslave, buy, sell, abuse, and work to death a whole other race of human beings. They went, this can't be. This is beneath our humanity. This has to stop. And how does stuff like that stop? When the people who have the power and are profiting from this economic system, who don't want change because the present order of things is benefiting me just fine, thank you very much. But because the followers of Jesus saw this, they began to change things and they were successfully able to abolish slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries. How does stuff like that change? It seems so inevitable. A little bit later after that, there was an individual guy who looked at what was happening in the life stories of people that he loved. He saw the destructive, corrosive effects of addiction to alcohol. And he saw, man, this is destroying lives, families, friendships, communities. What, what can we do about this? Every time I see the story start, I already know how it ends. It's so inevitable. But if Jesus has been raised from the dead, maybe stories can change. And he started a little experiment, a little organization, a movement that came to be called Alcoholics Anonymous. And it has contributed freedom in Christ to millions of people set free by a higher power than we have in ourselves. Because if Jesus is alive, even the grave isn't certain, stuff like that can change. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm just stupid enough to believe. I'm just crazy enough to believe that if the living Jesus can change inevitable stuff like that, he could change me, he could change you, and he could change us together. The problem is, we forgot something. We forgot something really important. We forgot something that never should have been forgotten. We forgot something that all the early Christians knew perfectly well. All the Christians who wrote the pages of the New Testament and the Christian Bible knew, and we forgot. 
What they knew and we forgot is that when God raised Jesus from the dead, when he said even graves aren't certain anymore, when he broke the power of death, it not only means that we get to live again after we die together with Jesus, that we no longer have to fear the grave. Praise God, that's true. Not only do we get to live again after we die, we get to live before we die. Not only does it mean that Jesus broke the power of the grave, not only does that mean that we get into heaven with Jesus after we die, hallelujah, that's true, we don't have to fear for eternity anymore. Not only do we get to get into heaven after we die, heaven gets to get into us before we die. All the early Christians knew that. Somewhere along the way we forgot. Let me give you a couple examples. There's an early Christian whose name was John. He wrote the gospel of John. We heard a little bit of that read in worship this morning. In both of our worship venues, we heard the story that John wrote about the resurrection of Jesus. And he wrote it as if it were also the story of the world getting a do-over. So so the gospel of John starts with these three words, in the beginning. He's in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's writing about Jesus. If you've ever heard those three words before in the beginning, it's because they come from the very beginning of the Bible from Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And before there was any light and God said, let there be light. And then there's the story of the seven day creation extravaganza. And then, and then the Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, right? And John writes his gospel, the story about Jesus. And he starts the story of Jesus' life on this earth in the beginning. And then he gets to the story of Jesus' resurrection in John, what we now call John chapter 20. He just called it the end of my story about Jesus. And then he writes, it happened in the garden on the first day of the seven-day week before there was any light, right? And then Jesus bursts forth from the tomb. And John is saying, it's like the world is starting over. If the grave isn't certain anymore, it's like new creation. It's not the old creation anymore. Things are being made new even now. It started 2,000 years ago. There was an early Christian whose name was Luke. He knew this. He didn't forget. Luke, you may have guessed, wrote the gospel of Luke. He also wrote the gospel of Luke, volume two, which we now call the book of Acts. And the book of Acts tells the story of the things that Jesus continued to do in this world through his people. And you can read in the book of Acts about how the Christians gathered together. They formed these little communities. I mentioned a little while ago how they crossed all these lines that nobody in the old creation was crossing, lines of nation and race, class and gender. They began to live together as if they lived together like God had given the world a new operating system. Like there was an operating system for the old world that is now obsolete. It's been uninstalled and God has given us a new operating system. And so they started to care about one another, whether they were related with their family or not. God made them family. Somebody had needs. Somebody else sold stuff and met their needs. They began to dignify women. Some of them began to free their slaves. Where did that come from? God replaced one old operating system with a new one right here in our world because Jesus is alive. There's an early Christian whose name was Paul. Sometimes now we call him St. Paul or the Apostle Paul. He traveled all around the ancient Mediterranean world, starting these little communities, little house churches of followers of Jesus, people who became brothers and sisters to one another in Christ. And he wrote letters to them. And one time he wrote a letter to a little church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. We now call this letter 1 Corinthians, which is funny because it's the second letter he wrote to the Corinthians, but the first one we have the text of. And in chapter 15 of that letter, He writes this long explanation for the truth and power of the resurrection of Jesus. It's 58 verses long. I'm not going to read it to you right now, but I'm going to read you verse 58. 
This is the end, the climax of that argument. After he says all he says about the resurrection of Jesus, he says in verse 58, therefore, right? And because Jesus is alive, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Could I get you to read that last phrase with me out loud? Wherever you are, if you're at home, in the traditional service by video at home, we're going to read that phrase that starts with because you know. Ready? One, two, three. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You know another fancy word for in vain? It's all inevitable. You knew how it was going to end, but it doesn't have to be that way anymore. You, you one of those people who struggles with anger, with other sinful reactions that drag your life down and make your life less than you want it to be. And it is hard. It is the work of the Lord. It is a labor to take that stuff and lay that before Jesus and surrender that to him. So I don't want to be that person. I can't stop it by myself. Jesus, heal me, change me. When you do that, it's not in vain. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain when you give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because Jesus is alive and he's making a new world, right? If, if you are working in this world to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven, and you're trying to bring dignity to those from whom their dignity has been taken. You're working for those who are hurting. You're working to protect and care for those everybody else gave up on. You're swimming upstream, running against the wind. You're trying to live by a new operating system in a world that is still stuck with this obsolete one. You can give yourself fully to that work and labor in the Lord and know that it's not in vain because Jesus is alive and he changes the world. He's Lord right now. If you're in relationships that are hurt, that are wounded, friendships, family relationships, your marriage is scarred, it's been wounded, and you're just about ready to give up the fight. But somewhere inside you, there's this conviction, there's this hope that maybe God could heal that relationship, that maybe God could heal that marriage like Jesus healed bodies, like the Holy Spirit heals us inside and heals us outside. And you say, I'm gonna fight for this relationship. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give myself to the work of the Lord here and I believe that God could heal it. Then your work in the Lord is not in vain because old beginnings don't have to have old endings. Jesus can write new endings to these stories and that is not in vain. None of the early Christians forgot that and we don't have to forget it anymore. I wanna invite you into a journey together with this church family. I wanna invite you into a journey of not forgetting anymore. I want to invite you into a journey of that which is not inevitable. I want to invite you into a journey of restoration together with our church family that begins today and begins in earnest next Sunday. It's called Restored, the Good and Beautiful Life. Because we're going to take a journey of seeing the power of Jesus restore us to the good and beautiful life that God always intended for us. If you've been part of this church, if you've been around here at all for the last few months, you will know that we actually already had kind of a prequel to this journey, right? It was called Restored, the Good and Beautiful God. And it's been amazing to see the things that God is doing in your lives, in our life together. It's been a blessing to me to see God's work of restoration, to experience that in my own heart. And I want to finish today by sharing with you a, a, an encouragement, a story from some people in our church family that I know and love and wanted to encourage your heart with their story. Their names are Ray and Allison. They've got two boys named Bridek and Riker. They, coincidentally, they happen to be in my own community group, and so I know this family well. And as I saw what God was doing in them over recent months, I asked them if they'd be willing to, to be so brave as to share their story with you this morning by video. And I'm really grateful they said yes. So I want to ask you to turn your attention to the screens right now.
It had been many years since I'd been at church, but one of the first sermons I heard after coming back, the pastor used a metaphor, a metaphor to describe faith for different people. He said, faith for some is like a microwave, instant heat, readiness for change. For others though, it's more like a crock pot, slow and simmering. In that metaphor, I'm definitely a crock pot. I had strong faith in my youth. It was part of every family gathering. We do things like pray and read devotions, but it felt like God wasn't a God who loved. He was angry and judgmental. Life started to fall apart. I was young and innocent, and things began to unravel due to divorce, health problems, and abandonment. Those around me turned to substances in order to cope. As a young adult, God was the furthest thing from my mind. I searched for love, family, and belonging as far from religion as I could. I intentionally kept religion out of my wedding, certain that faith and religion would not be a part of our future. Ray and I felt happy. It even felt good living the life we were living. I was working with the marginalized, the cast-off, the misfits. I heard story after story from people at their worst, and I was giving them advice, telling them that there was a reason why they survived, that their life had purpose. But I didn't believe any of that was true for myself. And then we had our first child, Brydick. For whatever reason, God began to use the awe-inspiring life of this little man to tug at my heart. I felt the love of Jesus through my son, and I could feel that God was telling me to find a church home. Ray didn't have any interest, and I couldn't blame him. I didn't have a good reason to go, and even my own history with religion hadn't been very life-giving. But finally, after a few times going alone, Ray came with. And through just a couple of sermon series, we started to see and learn about Christ's love. I remember there was a particular message about faith and science that really helped bring down some barriers for Ray. Coming to worship each week has helped us learn about the love of a good and beautiful God. And we've also joined a community group that meets on Sunday evenings. That has become a very important bridge for us to figure out how to practice what we're learning in the everyday life of our family. Now we're a family that prays the shark prayer and the Superman prayer with our boys, Breidick and Riker. We talk with them about the small ways we can show God's love to others. Life's waves still come, and we still have questions and doubts. His perfect love drives out our fear, and knowing that we are loved no matter what helps us keep practicing. Every week we see a little more of the good and beautiful God who runs after his lost children and restores them. Things don't have to end like they begin. God writes new endings to old beginnings. I don't think Jesus is probably ever going to fix my jump shot or save the Vikings. <laughs> but the direction of our hearts, the attitudes inside of us, the character of our relationships, these are the things that God makes new. And I want to invite you to take a step into a journey with the God who makes all things new. 
into the experience of the good and beautiful life that Jesus intends for us as we learn to follow him and live life his way. Our church family begins this journey in earnest next week, learning how is it that Jesus makes all things new in us? How is it that the power of Jesus' resurrection now actually creates the good and beautiful life in us? And I want to invite you as a first step to just be here next week. Don't miss out. Just be here for the first step of that journey. And I want to invite you also to take some steps that will help you get connected and get supported in that journey. In the worship bulletin you got on your way in this morning, there's a study guide in there. It's the thing that on the right-hand side, there's a tab that says community groups. And on the front top center of the first page of that little pullout is a short list of simple steps that you can take that will help you get connected and get supported in this journey of life restoration. As a, as a church, we've invested some time and energy and resources into that because we just want to be supportive of your journey with God to the good and beautiful life. It's a long journey. It's a journey that begins right now. It lasts for our whole life. It lasts on into eternity. It's a lifelong journey. Even the journey of a thousand miles begins with one single step. I invite you today to take yours. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are the author of all life and you are the author of new life. You are the God who makes all things new. And we bring you today the old things in our lives, the old structures, the inevitabilities, the stuff that feels stuck and broken, the old operating system. And we pray for you to breathe the wind of the spirit of new life into us to restore us, to bring the good and beautiful life to us, to our families, to our relationships. Now we surrender these things to you and pray that you would make us new. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.